Imagine that you're walking along the road uh, one day when you see a man coming toward you from the other direction. You recognize him almost immediately. It's the young preacher from Nazareth. His friends walk with him. You've seen them all before. You've heard stories. And suddenly, before you can think about it, you find yourself turning on your heel as he draws near. You do an about-face, and you begin to walk along with him. Now, what you couldn't know was that he had just come from a Samaritan village, a place that you would never go, and so would never imagine a young preacher going. Some places were forbidden off the map. You couldn't know that he'd been rejected there, rejected because of his determination to go to Jerusalem, rejected because of the things he said that would happen once he got there, things like betrayal, arrest, and death. His message was too hard, too much to to bear, and so they sent him packing, and you just happened to bump into him not long afterward. His disciples soon catch you up. They're still fuming, those ungrateful Samaritans turning their backs on their master. Outrageous, unforgivable. James and John had even asked about commanding fire to come down in the village and wipe them out. Like something one of those Hebrew prophets might have done, old heroes like Elijah. But Jesus, now get this, Jesus turned and yelled at them. And not at the Samaritans, he yelled at James and John. Get thee behind me, or something like that and then started walking along the path when you just met him on an impulse from who knew where, and it turned and followed after him. And so you walk along, edging your way from the rear of the pack to its head, trying to get closer to Jesus. He walks fast, long, determined strides, so it takes some time making your move from the back to the front, especially since you want to be discreet about your intentions, or maybe you're just a little bit afraid of getting too close like a moth that seeks the light that can burn it up. Close enough, but not too close. Slowly you make your way. And finally you're there, close enough to touch him, struggling to match him stride for stride, struggling to figure out what to say. Because you do want to say something. You wonder wonder if he recognizes you from the last time he passed this way. And you're not sure what to hope for, that he does remember you, or that he doesn't. Again, there's this strange alternation going on within you, drawing you close, but at the same time holding you just out of reach of those fiery eyes, that mournful gaze, and that sharp tongue. And then, before you can stop yourself, you speak. And you find yourself in that moment believing exactly what you're saying, an immediate conviction like a flash from heaven. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus glances at you, Now, later, you wonder just how he said it. You'll wonder about his tone. Was it sorrowful? Was it lonely, angry, bitter, judging, despairing? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Sometime later, when Jesus and his friends are just dots on the horizon, you turn around again and you start walking home. Our gospel reading for this morning reveals to us what it means to follow Jesus. It means setting aside everything that prevents us from that following. It means giving up on our personal priorities, no matter how right and noble they may be. It means turning away from those things which slow us down or otherwise hinder us, no matter how common or normal or human they may be. 
It means accepting a yoke, submitting to the Christ, placing ourselves and our wants and preferences and needs under the primary commitment to Jesus. It means walking away from everything else for the sake of following Jesus. This morning, we get our gospel straight. Foxes and birds have it better than the followers of the one without a better pillow. Let the dead bury their own dead. Put your hand on the plow and don't look back. This is a far cry from come all ye who labor and are heavy laden. This is more like an invitation to the martyr's mirror. Let it all go, all of it, including your responsibilities to family, including your family, and follow me. As Bonhoeffer said, Jesus bids us come and die. If you love Jesus, you need to leave all your other loves behind. This gospel burns. Well, some 30 years later, Paul is caught in the middle of an argument with the Galatians. The congregation was having a hard time learning how to live together in the unity of Christ. And while we can't know exactly what Paul was responding to, it seems to have something to do with a mistaken notion of freedom in Christ. Apparently, some folks were claiming that freedom as a license to behave as they wished, to look after their own needs, to put themselves ahead of others, to behave without considering the impact of that behavior on their sisters and brothers. They were biting and devouring each other, a striking image of a community at odds with itself. They weren't feeding each other. They were eating each other. But Paul calls them back to their true selves. Yes, they are free. Christ has set them free. But what they call freedom is really a return to bondage. By behaving in ways which belie their relationship to Christ, the Galatian Christians are effectively putting back on the yoke of sin. They're behaving as if Christ never did anything for them at all. They ought to be living according to the Spirit, But instead, they're living by the flesh. Now, for Paul, this is coded language. Living according to the flesh means looking out for your own interests at the expense of others. It means acting as if your baptism meant nothing. It means living as if you never really did die to sin. It means putting putting back on that yoke of sin and the law, lugging around all that stuff that Christ has already lifted from you, picking it back up and carrying it around and proclaiming by your behavior that Christ died for nothing. That kind of behavior, that living to gratify the flesh, is a return to the ways of empire. And that old imperial way of being does not make for a loving community. The empire is hierarchical, violent, greedy, self-serving, and intent on pursuing its own ends without regard to its effects on others. And people living in the empire are socialized to live that way, to behave that way, to create little empires of their own, lording it over whoever they can, claiming their place at the front of the pack, and then doing whatever is necessary to maintain that place. Now, the empire language is mine. Paul speaks instead of engaging in the works of the flesh. And those works are, Paul says, obvious. One commentator gathers these various sins under four categories. The first three, fornication, impurity, and licentiousness, involve a degrading of the gift of sexuality. Idolatry and sorcery are violations of the first and second commandments. The next eight are sins which create harm within the body, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy. 
And then there are those last two sins which amount to giving over one's mind and body to a foreign substance. Regardless of how we categorize them, it is obvious that such conduct is hardly becoming a follower of Jesus. These are the behaviors of people who have remained entrenched in the empire of human sin, people in need of salvation, not of people who have already been saved and been buried with Christ and raised again with him in baptism. And if you persist in doing these things, Paul says, you run the risk of walking right off the path that leads to Christ and the new creation. By living this way, you effectively turn around a second time and walk in the other direction, this time away from liberation and back toward Egypt or Babylon or Rome or the world. To return to Paul's main point, gratifying the desires of the flesh is not the behavior of free people. This is not what freedom looks like. This is just another replica of the way the world operates, a microcosm of the way the world lives without Christ. This is the way it used to be, but ought not be any longer. The Galatians had been set free from all of this, so why pick it back up again? True freedom, says Paul, resides in living according to the Spirit and putting away all of those things, those old behaviors, those former ways of being, for the sake of freedom in Christ Jesus. It means giving up those old things and following after Jesus. It means replacing those old ways of being with the ways of the Spirit. It means letting that old garden die off and be cleared out for the sake of a new kind of produce, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against such things. If you belong to Christ Jesus, your bondage to the flesh has been broken. Those desires, those passions, all of those ways of being which serve only you and your immediate desires, all of those things were put away. We no longer live that way. Instead, we live by the Spirit. We're guided by the Spirit. We're free in Christ Jesus. Now, this, too, is bracing stuff. This gospel, too, tells us that following after Jesus and becoming part of a Christian community involves an awful lot of letting go, a lot of putting away, a lot of giving up. Now, at first glance, the things that Paul calls the Galatians to give up don't seem all that hard to lose. We are, after all, nice people who want to be nice and want to show others that we are nice and that they will want to come join us and be nice with us. It's a little sarcastic, I know, but it is intentional sarcasm because I think we contemporary Mennonites have gotten awfully cozy with the good news. We've domesticated it. We've tamed it. We've claimed it as our own. The rules are clear, and they're intended to help us be good people. And that's all well and good. Familiarity and a sense of clarity regarding our faith is not a bad thing. We know how to behave and can readily endorse Paul's challenge to our first-century Galatian cousins to knock it off, knock off the bad behavior, get in line like good boys and girls, straighten up, fly right. Of course fornication's bad. Of course envy's bad. And let's not even talk about quarreling. We do not do quarreling. But I worry that we've gotten so cozy with the gospel, we've gotten so good at behaving well that we can't clearly hear the desperation in Paul's warning because it's not enough to be nice. 
We can check off all the various fruits. We can take a garden tour on any given Sunday, see them flourishing among us. We can even enter them into competitions at the local fair. And in the process, we can begin mistaking those fruits as being the result of our own hard work, our own skill, our own superior technique, our own steady effort. And we can forget that all of it, all of it, comes as a gift from the Spirit. And so here again, I hear this call to put away, to lay down, to let go of our human pretension to righteousness, even as we are made righteous by the Spirit's power. To stop acting as though we have a leg up on right behavior, and so are well positioned to read Galatians without blushing, having climbed onto the moral high ground on our own steam. The invitation, using Paul's language, is to remember that we've been set free from all of that. We've been set free from the need to get ourselves in line, to shape up, to guard the heights against the encroachment of those less well-suited to the rarefied air of our self-made righteousness. In our cozy presumption that we have this fruitful living thing pretty well down, we are paradoxically slouching our way back to Babylon. I hear in Paul's words an invitation for us to stop trusting in our own familiarity with the gospel, our own competence, our own ability to walk the line, and instead to throw ourselves into the freedom of life in the spirit, to let go of what prevents us from enjoying that freedom completely and what prevents our sisters and brothers from enjoying that same freedom, to give it all up as the fool's errand that it is, and instead to rest in the work that's already been done for us through and in Jesus Christ, to let go and trust the Spirit to catch us. Now, this letting go is no easy thing. We can easily feel that when we contemplate walking away from our families or our responsibilities to them. We can easily feel that when we consider what it would mean to deny every other love for the sake of Christ. We hear the hard words of Jesus on the road to Jerusalem and we cringe. And then we put on our best theological hats and start nuancing, reframing, explaining, softening, turning the hard words of Jesus into something more palatable. We call it a parable or, or hyperbole. We can decide that while he said this, he really meant that. And all of that is a natural, normal response from disciples who have learned the hard way over the millennia that when it comes right down to it, we can't possibly do what Jesus is calling us to do. We can't just walk away and let those left behind pick up the pieces. We can't stop loving our families in order to reserve our love solely for Jesus. We can't, in other words, stop being human beings. We can't turn away from all that ties us to this world, all that ties us to one another, and pretend that it doesn't exist anymore. And yet we have these hard words from Jesus. And we watch one after the other well-intentioned disciple turn and walk away, giving it up as impossible, as too much to lose, too much to bear. This call to offer ourselves to Christ, it cuts. This call to love Christ, it hurts. This call to love Christ, it means a lot of letting go. And not just at the beginning, not only at the start, when we must necessarily leave one place, one love, one set of responsibilities for the sake of following after Jesus and so inhabiting another place and taking up another love and another set of responsibilities. As Paul reveals, following after Jesus means a lifetime of letting go, putting away, laying down. 
Paul tells us we've died with Christ and been raised with him. And then we have to remember that every single day and reckon with the consequences of that dying and that resurrection every day. It means daily, even constantly, setting aside our own gratifications and every day, perhaps constantly, resuming the posture of a disciple. Following after Jesus is not something that costs us just once. It costs us daily. There is, someone said, a cross to be taken up every day. Perhaps in the end what it all comes down to is trust. Not that trust is an easy thing either. In the case of the story from Luke, we must trust that if we put everything away and follow after Jesus, that God will not forget all that we've left behind. Trusting that if the whole world really is God's to save, then in fact whatever we do leave behind will also be gathered up in good time and gathered into God's loving embrace. To trust that all will be well and all manner of things will be well. To trust and so follow after Jesus. Or, in the case of Paul's word to the Galatians, to trust that what the Spirit has done in us makes possible a new way of being. To trust that what Christ has done in us is also being done in our sisters and brothers. And so we don't have to look out for ourselves and our interests because the whole community is doing that for us. To trust that we can lay aside our needs and our preferences, we can put them second to the needs and preferences of others because our sisters and brothers will do precisely the same thing with their own needs and preferences. To trust that all that is good and that makes for the well-being of the body is a gift from the Spirit and so is not ours to manufacture or maintain except insofar as we accept the gift that has been given to us and live like we believe that the one who gave it is going to nurture it in us and among us. Whatever sadness we feel in laying down and giving up and putting away is answered as we trust that we do not do these things in vain. We're not walking away from other obligations for the sake of our own self-discipline. We're not setting aside other loves for the sake of our own saintliness. We're not behaving like nice folks for the sake of our own sense of self-worth or as part of some grand scheme to prove to the world that we are on the right track. No, all of this, all of this giving up and laying down and putting away is nothing more or less than a surrender to Christ. It's nothing more or less than throwing ourselves into the arms of God, trusting that God will not only catch us, but will give us all we need to follow after Jesus and so enter fully into the freedom of the Spirit. It's nothing more or less than acting as if the promises of Jesus are true. And so setting our feet on the path that God has set for the whole world to follow, the path that begins and ends with love, a path that leads us all home. Yes, there is giving up and putting away and letting go. But as Paul tells us, while that may be hard to do, it's a necessary step on the way to freedom in Christ. Imagine yourself walking along the road. You turn and watch as Jesus and his followers slip over the horizon. You feel some regret as you face your own weakness, your own lack of trust, and you try to shake it off. You keep walking. But then something happens. Maybe you see a bright light in the middle of the road or hear a voice calling you. 
Or maybe the words that Jesus spoke are still burning inside of you. Or maybe you decide that as hard as it may be to walk after, it's, well, it's better than walking away. Or maybe you simply decide that what you have seen and heard of Jesus is worthy of your trust. That maybe if you let go and put away and give up everything to follow, maybe all of those things too will be gathered into God's care. Maybe they too will be gathered into God's salvation. Now imagine yourself stopping dead. Stopping dead in your tracks. Imagine yourself standing there, unmoving for the longest time. And then imagine that out of that clear blue sky begins to rain. Gently at first, and then harder harder until you and everything around you is soaked. Imagine that that rain revives you, lifts you up, energizes you, calls you back to your true self. And imagine that you turn around. And with a surge of power from heaven only knows where, you take off running faster than you've ever run before, flying almost, your feet seeming hardly to touch the ground. Jesus is up there ahead. And you're going to keep on running until you catch up with him again. And when he looks at you this time, you're going to know just what to say. May God make it so. Amen.